Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, everybody. I have a very exciting guest today that I'm very excited to talk to. Very humble, cool guy from... Canada. Um, I'm sure you may have heard of him, Bradley Jerzak. Uh, he's been pretty influential for the past, let's say, 10, 12 years or so. Uh, written some really great books. Like, uh, I always screw it up. It's the uh, Her Gates Will Never Shut. Shall Never Shut? Shall not, her gates shall her gates will never be shut. Yeah. That's well, great gates will never be shut. I always, I always mess it up, but. The gist is, yeah, from from the book of Revelation, the end of the book of Revelation. Yeah, that's right. Looking at a more hopeful vision of eschatology there. And then you also wrote the trilogy on uh, the more Christ-like, yeah, the more Christ-like God, more Christ-like word, more Christ-like way. Uh, those are really cool. And now your most recent book, I'm sure you've written a lot more books, but those are just some ones that come to mind. Um, your most recent one is on deconstruction. Yeah, out of the that's embers. Right. Yeah, I'm really excited to read it. I still haven't got it yet, but this will be a great uh, starting point. I like that getting a little bit of background knowledge before reading okay. a book. Anyway, okie dokie. Yep. So anyway, yes, here in the fellow traveler, we talk a lot about um, spiritual heritage. This concept of where do you find your roots, and then um, how have your roots, how have you grown from your roots? You know. Um, um and where do you find yourself now and i've heard your story quite a bit because you do share it with a lot of people that being said maybe you can just give us a quick uh 10 15 minutes top just over overview of your story and how you got to this place sure yeah so um you know in terms of spiritual roots i've i'm really grateful um to have deep roots in that sense, because I grew up in a Baptist home um, with, with a backstory, you know? So um, my dad, my dad's family, um, we can trace it all the way back to the 1400s with the Hussites in, in and Moravian brethren, Bohemian brethren, all of that through, through the Czech Republic and then into exile in uh, Ukraine for 300 years and then only getting back for a few decades before having to flee Hitler to come to Canada. And a lot of my, uh, uh, some of my relatives still live in Czechoslovakia or Czechia now, but at the time, you know, my great uncle was tortured for his faith in, as a minister um, in, in Czechoslovakia. Um, 
and that same family it's like there's been a church planter in the family ever since the 1850s so including me so that's an interesting uh story but also like yeah i regard those as roots that i appreciate because i i feel generational blessings coming down through that line and then on my mom's side um you know just faithful faithful woman a daughter of a pentecostal woman who was the daughter of a salvation army woman and i don't you know i don't know as much about that except i know my little granny prayed for me every day um on her knees from when my mom was in labor with me until she died so um i regard that stuff as precious and i think that's why my earliest connections with jesus were so also precious and healthy let's say i'm going to say up until i was seven here was christianity for me largely it's uh that jesus is real that when i talk to him he's with me and in me and he hears me uh, that the scriptures are wonderful and i was inspired as soon as i could read to read the book of acts um and and um and read everything in my bible that my dad had highlighted in his and then really took those things to heart. I remember first verse I memorized was Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. I remember um, my mom teaching me to pray and we'd pray for all of my relatives by name every night. And I had a lot over 30 cousins and then the aunts and uncles and all of that. And then, uh, and then they were evangelists too. They were active in sharing their faith in non-aggressive ways, but they would go visit people who were dying in the hospital. And my parents weren't, weren't uh, ever on staff ministry, but, but they certainly were servants of Jesus doing their best with what they knew in the world. Uh, where it got a bit toxic for me is when the revivalists came to town and I, I took what they said to heart because here's the here's the traveling experts right and they're doing the hellfire and brimstone thing they're doing very moralistic preaching about you know smoking and sex and all of that and they're doing like um heavy duty armageddon stuff because uh the cold war was pretty intense at that time and and it looked you know, we had this, the the Yom Kippur war in Israel, it looked like Armageddon was coming, which meant Jesus was coming. And so that excites you. So you buy into all of that. And, and, uh, and that begins to attach to your idea of faithfulness. And that not only, you know, that you have to believe these things to be a faithful Christian. And, and that becomes really troubling when you start thinking about your beloved cousins who aren't, quote, saved yet. And that God, who's supposed to be good, may cast them into a lake of fire forever and ever. And how will that not happen? That will not happen if I can evangelize them. As a, so now I'm an eight-year-old terrified of the outcome for my cousins, even while I'm hoping for Jesus to return. So it was a, it was a very confusing inside. Um, eventually, I went to an even more conservative um less fiery but more conservative bible college where i met my wife and i remember my mom even there she could just see because i was inclined to think uh faithfulness looked like conservatism uh she said bradley you must keep your heart open keep your heart open and i so appreciate that now she prayed a lot every day for me about that 
Um, but I, I was married. And then by the time I finished, I went, took a year off doing and, and did some volunteer youth ministry. But um, a year in my, uh, uh, after seminary, my, uh, my wife's Mennonite church invited me to come to British Columbia. And I was a youth and young adults and outreach pastor there for 10 years. And I was the, uh, I was the provincial head of a, of a program called living and faithful evangelism while we were there. It was all about church growth, church planting and all of that. What I loved about my Mennonite time is my wife's deep roots back to Ukraine. Her, her grandfather was martyred by the Stalinists. Um, and, uh, yeah, just really solid people who spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, learning to live the Sermon on the Mount, that this isn't just about making you despair of works so you'll cast yourself on grace. It's like, no, you, the wise man who uh, has builds his house on the rock is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. So they were really focused on a Jesus way of living that I still buy into to this day. But after 10 years of that, and, and also uh, some powerful experiences of the, that I think were authentic with the Holy Spirit connected to the renewal movement, but inside this Mennonite church, um, uh, I, I did become more open to, let's say, small C charismatic stuff. Um, but then let's say, okay, so that's 88 to 97, 98 to 2008, we planted a church that focused on people with disabilities people with addictions, people who are poor, people on the margins. And um, that was a really wonderful experience. It was called Fresh Wind. But in the 10th year of that, I, I, just, I, I really fell apart because we had so many traumas and I started being overwhelmed. And in being overwhelmed, I was, I was acting out in, in just like awful ways. And I realized I don't trust God and I don't. And, I, and uh, so I, I just really... I was not able to function. So um, um, can I interrupt yep. you for one minute? Um, I was just, while we're there, what you were, so you were at this Mennonite church and it yep. was, but it was kind of had a charismatic flair to it, which is really awesome. Yeah. Um, I was curious of any, um, any experiences that you had there, but also before you even get into that, um, what you were just mentioning this concept of, uh, I've been thinking about this concept of the wilderness. Yeah experience and um i've kind of gone through that a couple times now especially even even in the past year went through that experience where it's just you almost have like an existential crisis and you question your faith you question your salvation you question if god is is real or not you know during that time actually i didn't question if god was real i just i really questioned my standing with god i felt Mm. like i was really Mm. lost I, i wonder if you could speak to that that place of like desolation and being in the desert do you want to start with the desolation or the or the experiences yeah how we talk about that and then you can weave it into um talking about the experiences in that church charismatic experiences yeah so so this was a normal cares it was a normal it was a normal traditional mennonite church but what had happened is that during the jesus people era they, the youth group had experienced a move of the Holy Spirit. So they had this in their background. When I came in and I started thinking about Holy Spirit stuff, and, and I had friends in the Vineyard Church, and I thought, what would be a healthy way to do this with our, our young people? 
And um, so we just emphasized listening to God and then did really simple kind of um, exercises where we would say, just look around the room and I'm going to ask God to highlight someone for you. It won't be a shaft of life. It's just lighter coming from the sky. It's just like you'll notice them. And I'm, I'm going to ask, and we'll take that as an invitation from God for you to go pray for them. So the first time we do this, uh, Darla, 14-year-old girl, looks over and she notices Terry, a 15-year-old girl. And she goes over to her and said, I, you know, when we prayed that, I was noticing you. Is there anything you want me to pray for? And Terry gave her a few examples of like, well, you could pray for this or that. And Darla's like, I don't think so. And then Terry said, well, you could pray for my legs. And she pulled up her pant legs and she had all these open sores with pus and ooze coming out. They looked like third degree burns her whole legs. And, and Darla goes, that's it. And Darla's hand starts shaking. Well, Darla's never seen this. She doesn't know anything about that. Uh, but did they come ask me what to do? Oh, no. <laughs> they, they reason themselves that what they should do is that Darla should pray for these legs. And the doctors had said, we, this is, seems viral. We can't do anything for it. Nothing was working, but you'll just have to let it play out. Meanwhile, poor Terry's thinking, I'm a 15-year-old girl, and this is going to disfigure my legs. So Darla lays her hand on, on Terry's legs, and Terry's legs start shaking for about violently for about 10 minutes. So Darla just keeps praying until the shaking stops. Then, they, um, then they're like, wow, that, that was weird, but her legs looked the same. So she, they were like, okay, well, it's time to go home anyway. It was the end of the youth meeting. The next day, Terry wakes up and calls Darla. She says, guess what I'm doing? What are you doing? I'm dancing around my kitchen. Why? Because I woke up and my, my legs are completely healed. There's not open sores. There's not scabs. There's not even scars. I have like baby skin and they're just like, wahoo. So they come to me and they're like, we've got to pray for the adults now because they're full of faith, right? Well, the adults are, they're more traditional and they're like, oh, I don't know if we like this, but I said to the pastor, what if I do a, a a sermon about Naaman and how the little girl was the key to Naaman's healing. And that maybe there, you know, our young people would love to pray for people too. And he says, okay, just be gentle, make it an invitation. We're not going to be pushy. We're not going to be like big C charismatic. This is going to be humble, subtle, an invitation. So I preach says, anyone wants to come up for prayer, you know, come up. And, and a bunch of people came up, including Mrs. Schlaman, who was, um, a hunchback and uh terry and darla went and prayed for her along with a sponsor named tyler and um mrs schlaman just said i'm in ex excruciating pain and i can't do anything and i just pray every night lord just let me let turn over once without pain and then let me fall asleep and take me home i don't want to wake up tomorrow she prayed this every night so these kids pray for her and they're praying up a storm and she's just kind of standing there, but she's open. And, um, and then, you know, nothing apparent happened. Well, a few weeks later, we end up having a testimony night at the church and just anyone have a testimony of gratefulness. Mrs. Schlaman comes up and her back is completely straight. She saw before and after x-rays, um, there were there were vertebrae that had crumbled to dust and now 
her vertebrae are normal. I mean, it was it was wild. And this is not like some faith healing tour. This is two little teenage girls experimenting, right? So so we had a bit of we had quite a bit of experience like that where there was uh, listening to God. What are you saying? Then praying, and then and then seeing seeing pretty profound transformations um, that expanded into inner healing. And so as a result of inner healing, we saw a number of girls who had, were very far gone with anorexia um, uh, get healed from that. And even heart damage and, and the way their uh, reproductive system had shut down, all of that was healed and came back online. And today, one of those girls lives across the street from me. In, now we're in another city and she moved in across the street with her husband and two girls. And they had told her, you're not going to be able to have kids. So I've seen some pretty wild stuff, but when I boil it down, what did we actually do? We did a simple listening exercise. God, put someone on my heart. You ask them what they need. You say, God, would you please help them? And then I guess statistically, we did it often enough to see a few great things. And I wish we could package it and guarantee it for everyone, but we we can't. We also we also cried a lot at the unhealed people. We're like, why isn't this working? <laughs> and we don't know, but we prayed. And we, so we just, we had this motto, you don't need enough faith to heal. You just need enough love to pray. And wow, that's really beautiful. I love that so much. I, I had a lot of experiences like that growing up in, I'd say, I don't know, I guess upper, upper CK, upper C charismatic churches, yep. like assemblies of God yep. um, was, a, my parents were a part of a church plant in the nineties in the middle of Worcester in the, in the inner city. And then that church kind of had some issues and fell apart. My father went through a big depression and a lot of sort, sort of issues. And then we ended up at a non-denominational church, non-denominational Pentecostal church. And my parents are still there. It, the church is still going pretty strong too. It's just really, it's really fascinating because I, you know, it, it seems like it's so easily those kind of word of faithy type, type charismatic churches can go wrong what, what do you think it is that happens um well first of all people because people can go wrong <laughs> also there's an approach to all of that stuff that that can be very uh um ego egocentric right and it can be about like revving yourself up and it can be about proclaiming you know stuff that's not even true and and so you know, inevitably we trip, I inevitably I trip. And so it, it's, it's, um, but I do think there are more, there are healthier practices and less healthier practices. And one of the less healthy practices is when you make bold claims that God is going to do something when in fact, he's not said he's going to do that, then he doesn't do that. And people are wounded and disillusioned. And you've really misrepresented him. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to say, when we pray for people, we aren't going to chicken out. We'll ask them to heal. But we want everyone to feel blessed when we pray for them, not just the good testimonies, which is only 5 or 10% of the people anyway. We want people to feel feel loved and, and connected to Jesus. So frankly, most of the miracles I've seen, we didn't even ask for the miracle. We just were looking to set somebody face to face with Jesus to hear how much he loved them. 
And we'd even say that, just close your eyes. And I want you to picture the kind face of Jesus, because that's real. And when you look into the, the those eyes, I'm going to ask him to tell, you know, what does he want you to know today? What does he want to say about his love for you? And then, and then he'll say something to them, and then they start weeping. And then, but weirdly, we've seen another, a number of people who are legally blind get their vision back while they were doing that exercise. And we didn't even ask for it. We weren't expecting it. It was just a love connection. Well, if they didn't get their eyes healed, it wouldn't have mattered to them because it wasn't about that. It was about that connection. And that's something we can actually, you know, um, we can guarantee that Jesus loves someone. And when we call on him, he promises to answer them. He just doesn't always do it like we demand he'll do it. And yeah. I think it's those kind of demanding ways that really injured people. It's kind of like that concept of like, is Jesus a means to your end or is Jesus the end? Is yeah, Jesus yeah. your end? And yeah. it's kind of like that, that slight difference where like the truth and the truth and the falsehood can be just like one one shade away from each other so yeah close. yeah so that's really cool those are some really cool experiences I, i've had some similar experiences too um um and i'm really grateful for growing up charismatic i think it really for me what happened was there was i feel like there's a lot of um my faith was very experiential growing up so then as i got older i had to fill in the gaps intellectually yeah and that's kind of been part of the journey as well but i can't yeah. forget those roots those roots that i have in but I like how practical your um, approach was just like, just picture Jesus. It actually reminds me a lot of the vineyard. When I went to vineyard churches, they did a very similar thing. Yeah. We, we had Langley vineyard just down the road from us, which who happened to be full of a lot of former Mennonites and, um, and not all, you know, there's toxic vineyards too, I'm sure. But this one, this one was healthy in my view. It, it was, uh, and they they gave us practical ways of avoiding spiritual abuse when you engage um, these kind of ministries and and uh, uh, to the degree we we took that to heart we actually had a very good experience. But uh, mm, yeah, that's cool. So the flip side, the desert um, for me that was about unraveling. That was about you know I did a lot of deconstruction around theology that was just glorious, uh, like letting go of the violent God who needs his wrath appeased in your in very poor atonement theology or the the wrath of god that needs to be released as eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire because why you know when letting go of that that part of the deconstruction actually drew me closer to god so it was it was all positive except for the haters but my own church were not haters they 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 were with me in it um but the where it got bad was um, you know, in the world of addictions and in the world of disabilities, you, you see a lot of tragic deaths and we saw pretty brutal stuff. Um, and, and then it started accumulating and I couldn't hold it together. And then that made me think I needed to hold it together. And that's just Messiah complex. So um, for me, the desert was not, is God real? I knew he was real. I'd seen too much, but is he good? Like what kind of God lets somebody get abducted so there there that's a question we should have been asking we, we were asking an inner healing all the time what kind of god is this well he's the god who saves but now we're like 
yeah, but this girl got abducted or that woman got murdered um, or th this disabled guy just like died suddenly because of, you, you know, and it was so traumatizing. It was like every week. I probably wrote down 35 of these before I went to my doctor and he said, you've got to quit. And that was the problem was I was in a double bind where I couldn't hold it together, but I needed to. And I couldn't hold it together and God wouldn't. And the things were really, we were, it was so vulnerable. And suddenly I realized for the first time in my life, in my whole life, I didn't know if I trusted God. And so I went to the leadership. I'm like, this, this church is, is really in pain right now. You can't have your lead pastor who doesn't trust God. So I stepped down and actually my wife stepped in and, I began my healing journey, which led me to the last part of my journey, which is I've been with the Orthodox Church, and that's been like a hospital to me. The liturgy is like medicine to me. The entire theology is about the mercy of God, which I needed. So I'm allowed to believe God is love there. I can be a love heretic, but the Orthodox are going, well, of course you are. You're required to be. <laughs> so that's been my home since then. I've had a very good spiritual fathers in that place, uh, especially at the monastery. And um, and so, yeah, that was my four churches, really Baptist, then Mennonite, then Fresh Wind, which was this church for the marginalized, and now the monastery. And all of them gave me precious gifts. And I feel very rooted because of that. And I'm grateful. That's really cool. So you find yourself in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I actually had a conversation a few weeks ago with um, Father Andrew Jarmus. Yeah, you yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, really awesome, really humble, yeah. super knowledgeable too. And I asked, asked him a lot of great questions. I really dug into the. I was really wanted just for personal, you know, reasons. I wanted to know more about the Eucharist because I feel like Protestants just like almost desacralize it so much that it's just like this symbolic ritual you do. But there's something, I don't know, can, can you, have you had any experiences with the Eucharist where there's something spiritual or, I don't know, deeper that is going on than just like the symbolic? Um... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, even, I, I just never bought into the idea that this is just a symbol. Jesus never calls it just a symbol. Paul never calls it just a symbol. Yeah, we do this to remember him. It's part of the Paschal Feast, the Jewish tradition of the Exodus. But um, I, I was drawn, even early on, before I was Orthodox, I was drawn to the idea of the real presence of Christ in, in the Eucharist, whether, the, whether that meant in the wine and the bread, or in the taking of the wine and the bread, or in the just the exchange that's happening there. And so because of that, at the Fresh Wind Church, we actually would pray for people who came over to the communion table. And so we saw a number of pretty profound healings at the communion table, too. It, so I'm like, what? We don't need an altar call at the end of the service. We, we have the Eucharist for that. And, let's, and it's from the actual altar. So, um, so the more we began to take that seriously, the more we began to realize that... that uh, God is present in this and, and that Christ established this as a way to meet him. Um, now that I'm in the Orthodox Church, I would say where things went wrong in the West was 
they they started getting scholastic about it and they wanted to figure out what it is and how it works and what does jesus mean by this is my body and this is my blood and so i think on the catholic side they 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 overliteralized that it becomes it's changed from one thing into another thing and in, in the sense that one of my catholic relatives she she claimed to me no yeah if, if you check your stomach afterwards the, it won't be wine in there it'll be blood cells i'm like come on i don't even think the pope believes that but that's a kind of literalism and then the anabaptists just took the literalism to the other side and they're like well it can only be just a symbol because we're and that but that's still okay, what have you done? You've desacralized it. You've expunged it of mystery. So in the Orthodox Church, we say it this way, that this make this bread your true body, make this wine your true blood. True doesn't mean literal, but it means something. But what I know of this is when, he, when that wine becomes his blood, it's still wine. When his body becomes that bread, it's still bread. And I'm eating and drinking wine and bread but it's been now infused by the energies of the holy spirit to be truly uh that christ but it's christ in a mysterious way not a literalized silly way and it's so it's mystery but not magic um and but the reality of it is it is like i just see it functioning like actual medicine for the heart so yeah that's neat. I've, I've been meditating a lot on, on what the uh, Eucharist has to do with the atonement. Cause like there's a whole concept. And I had a great conversation with Andrew Jarmus to really help me understand this, that, um, you know, the sacrifice was the sacrifice isn't the killing. The sacrifice is them is that they're having a barbecue and they give up the best part of the, the lamb and lamb or the cow that they've raised they spent resources raising the best one they had and they yep. give the best part of that meat and they give it to god to eat but the cross flips it upside down right it's god giving us the best meal so yes yes so the last time i took eucharist uh was actually this past week and i was doing worship and we did it in the back before mm -hmm. worship and um when i did it i actually tried to visualize the father giving it to me it was like yeah. it was a really powerful experience in that way. Yeah, that there's a something you just said there super important for people. We don't take communion; it's given, right? That's an important thing. It's just like you don't baptize yourself. Um, you re, you receive baptism. You receive the Eucharist. And I do want to say for those who are interested in exploring Orthodoxy, there's there's a lot of weird and wacky converts out there who become Orthodox and turned it into kind of. Eastern Rite evangelicalism or something, and it's quite toxic. And but guys like Father Jarmus, I mean, he's he's um, you know he's a cradle Orthodox who knows the spirit of this thing, and he and uh, so that's a guy I trust, and he's worth following on Instagram, for example. Yeah, his Instagram, Father Andrew Jarmus, J A R M U S. Mm -hmm. um, that you know you want trustworthy teachers who aren't messing with the tradition. Because he's giving you the healthiest form of it. Mm, yeah, that's super cool. So, uh, can maybe you can speak a little bit about um, what are what are some specific things that helped you get out of that wilderness? I know, like you were speaking about re envisioning who God is. 
but I guess that this kind of ties into the concept of deconstruction. And I have to say, like, I, what I really appreciate about you is that you're not just like an intellectual, you, you genuinely care about people. You have a very pastoral heart and it is what I do find really hard. And, you know, a big part of my, this podcast is thinking about people as fellow travelers rather than, rather than enemies. And so often, especially in my camp of evangelicalism, which, you know, I still consider myself an evangelical in some way, shape or form. That's obviously taken on different meanings, but, um, but that's part of the deconstruction process, right? It's like trying to understand or maybe get back to some sort of, I don't know, truth, really deconstructing the falsehoods in a lot of ways, but yeah, that's um, exactly it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But maybe you can speak a little bit about, what deconstruction is and you know i feel really lucky for myself that i didn't deconstruct out of faith i yeah. really deconstructed in order to stay in the faith in a way which is necessary wouldn't you say well that's the best way to do it in my opinion <laughs> yeah so i mean deconstruction such a massive umbrella now that it it's tempting to make it into nothing so what i tried to do in the book so just again uh, to remind people the title is out of the embers so the idea there is like when we deconstruct down to embers, there's still something living there. There's still a fire. And um, that this is not an onion that goes down to nothing. And if it does, we've somehow lost our way. But even there, I, it's inexplicable to me how out of the embers, um, there is a kind of faith after this great deconstruction. So what I try to do there is I, I start with look at Um, This word is used really in very sloppy ways. It's used in academic, philosophical ways. It's used in all kinds of ways. Okay, fine. That's because people are complex. (laughs) Everybody has a story. Every story is unique. And for one person, deconstruction can be a liberation, like exodus out of bondage into freedom and something they celebrate. The very next person, deconstruction can be absolutely involuntary and completely traumatic and and where they're living might be in isolation and alienation and disillusion. And, and so um, on a positive side, deconstruction can be about removing constructs of God. That means ideas of God that we've constructed that are actually toxic. And when we remove those constructs, we can find the truth again. We get back to Jesus again. So I'm all for that kind of deconstruction. But these other poor folks, it's, it, it can be like, no, I, I've lost my faith. I've lost my community. I've lost Jesus. I've lost a reason for being. I don't even know why I'm alive. Well, that's a pretty harsh kind of deconstruction. So I'm looking at that whole spectrum And I'm looking at people reacting to that spectrum. And some are reacting and just going, oh, all deconstruction is bad and it's backsliding and and that's a slippery slope and you shouldn't be asking hard questions. And (laughs) oh my goodness, really? Um, But on the other hand, I I see people who are just, there's a toxic positivity around it. Oh yeah, just get rid of it all. Just like ditch ditch your church, ditch God, ditch Jesus, ditch... (laughs) And it's like, really, like, you're just being an arsonist now. And, and people who think that they're free now, because they, they're a kite that's cut their kite string. Well, and now they crash into a tree and they send me a DM. And they're like, what do I do now? I don't know, read my book, I guess. The, um, like, 
but no, that's not the right answer. The right answer is let's start with hearing the story and showing some empathy and not just blaming them for black backsliding and not just cheering on um, chaos and pain. It's like, no, I, you're, I hear you're in pain. So I'll give you a metaphor from the book that's important to me. Some people, um, it's like breast cancer and, and that toxic aspect of their, their God construct is like killing them. So breast cancer is very deadly. And at some point, you know, okay, I've got to remove this cancer. And so then you go get a mastectomy, but you have, you have no choice in how much of your breast you lose. And in, in likewise, the person who, who realizes I've got to get rid of these toxic elements of faith, sometimes they can't control how much of belief they lose. And they're like, I didn't mean to lose Jesus, and now I've even lost him. Or I, I didn't mean to lose my community, but now they all cast me out. You know, And so, so we just have to walk together through that kind of trauma. So there's the trauma of spiritual abuse in the church. There's the trauma of alienation after we've made an exit. So I'm just, I'm seeing all these people swirling around in this stuff. I'm like, you know what? There's a kind of deconstruction that is all about bringing us back to love, back to union with God, back to, um, back to an, uh, a direct experience of the goodness of Jesus. And if, for those who are interested in that, let's journey together. Let's see who the experts are. Cause you know, when it comes to mastectomies, you, you, you go, you don't go hire a plumber. And I think a lot of people are self-proclaimed deconstruction experts or just plumbers messing with people's lives and faiths and hearts. And uh, I'm not an expert, but I wanted to find out who they are. So in, in my book, I start pointing to the people I, I thought were helpful. That's really neat. Yeah, I find what's tough about deconstruction is that when you go through it, you're never the same again, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a, it's, it's an upheaval. And that's what I've experienced in my own deconstruction process just in the past, um, yeah, just in the past two years. And I think a big catalyst was 2020, which is like a lot of things going on there, right? It's like you, you have the political uh world and upheaval you have the world and upheaval with the pandemic you have you you get to see a lot of people's true colors yep especially evangelical or christian people that you thought were really centered around the love of christ and then you're like um this is scary yeah um, yeah and then but the question is then once you gather the pieces back and you kind of rebuild something it's like how how do you where do I go now? You know, where do I, where do I rest now? And that, I think that's one of the hardest things. And I think also about the future of the church. Um, what is that going to look like with people who are, you're going to start coming back. They want to come back into the, the fold of the church, but their faith is going to look different. And I guess it's different for everybody, but on a lot, when you have such a large scale event, I guess, quote unquote event, yeah. As such as this great deconstruction. Yeah. What is it going to look like when they start coming back or finding churches to rest in, you know? Yeah. I don't know if they will. I, yeah. Um, I, I suspect that the church may shrink by 40% permanently or, and uh, go down from there. So one of the aspects of the 
church of the future is that it will be smaller. And I would say, thank God <laughs> um, that, that the part of the part of the disillusionment was, is with uh, hype and with uh, consumerism and with smoke shows and with 10,000 seats and not knowing anybody. And, and so I'm, I, I think it will be good um, if, if it's smaller, but also I, uh, you know, we're going to also have to be way more generous with what we think church is as far as um what it looks like it's going to take different forms uh, forms that we might not have counted as church before so an example of that would be um my friend brian zahn you know before before covid we were pretty much in agreement that you know to call something church you, you can't do that online <laughs> and then and then covid happened and uh, they're like, we've got to provide something online. And yeah, it's a concession. Of course, we'd rather be able to hug each other, be together and worship, but we can't. So we're going to do that. We're going to make online church possible. And then what happened is they started getting members who don't live anywhere near them. And they're like, you guys are a lifeline for me. And so now COVID sort of the COVID restrictions have lifted and people can go back to Brian's church, but what are they supposed to do with the people who started coming from like halfway across the world, just shut down the streaming service and go, well, that's not real church. Like, well, it kind of is real church, I guess, but it's a different kind of church. Uh, for me, um, I, I attend monastery services but my primary fellowship is in 12-step recovery and i regard that as a form of church i don't want it to be formless like well there's this universal church out there and anytime i go out for beer with my buddies we're doing church no we're not we're having beer with our buddies but okay so then what what would we need to do to say that we're doing church and i'm just saying the the, the forms are going to be there's going to be forms we weren't expecting to see that are precious to us. And then in my case, um, what got me through it was, was uh, really loving people who, if you think about one form of church being the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus is the Good Samaritan, and he drops the person off at the hotel, and he transforms the hotel into a hospice. And a hospital, really. And he says, when I return, you know, I'm giving you everything you need to take care of this person. And when I return, if they own, own you anything, I'll pay you back. And, and so suddenly now the, the church can be like a hospital. Well, the people for me who were a healing team in my deconstruction included my faithful wife when I wasn't a faithful husband. It included my spiritual father, Archbishop Lazar, this Gandalf-like monk. Uh, it included my 12-step sponsor who loves my heart but is ruthless with my ego and helped discern the difference. Um, it, it's, you know, my doctor who gave me permission to quit. It, so um, I went to a counselor, I went to a spiritual director, and I recognized the privilege in that. Not everyone can afford all of these things depending where you live, but at least 
I, I think if, if anyone can start with two or three people who love you enough um, to walk the journey with you as a fellow traveler and are kind enough both to encourage you when you're down, but also to tell you the truth in your bullshit, then, uh, then, then, then we can make it, you know? Um, so just hurting people back into a service won't, isn't the trick. They, they found out they don't need that or even want that, but the ones who are lonely and they want connection again, that could grow into some beautiful forms. And in some cases, again, look like normal church. You know, my friend, Joe Beach, he has a normal church in Denver. And if you go there, you'll get normal. And it's like, thank God, we're, we didn't want mega church. We didn't want mega church. We would just want a place where we hear the, uh, the name of Jesus, where we pray together, where scripture gets opened. And then we fellowship a bit and go home. And, and it was like, wow, that was a nice connection. So that's a good word, I think, connection. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I always think about like, is there church in the wild? You know, like, is church everywhere? And I had this discussion recently with the with someone, and we kind of went, we're going back and forth. But and and to me, and I kind of agreed with, you know, I, I asked this question actually that uh, Father Jarmus, you know, this this um, charismatic side of me wants to believe like, oh, the Holy Spirit's at work everywhere, which is true. But then he was like, well, what is the Holy Spirit doing? It's constituting the church. It's creating a church, a body yeah, to be a part yeah. of. It's a mystery yeah. kind of, but. Yeah, there's a way of talking about, about it being everywhere that ends up making it nowhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's just Gnosticism again. So so the, these, the eternal thing becomes flesh in Jesus, right? But it also then becomes flesh in the body, which he calls his church. And that, mm -hmm. that body is something tangible in places where you can meet to fellowship and love each other instead of just like, well, it's this abstract concept in the clouds. Mm -hmm. um, one fun way to think about that, the father John bear talks about is like eschatologically. That means in the, at, at the end of all things, the church is the union of Christ and his bride. But right now, where is it? And he says, kind of think about the era that we're in is like, spring is coming there's still snow on the ground and you begin to see crocuses pop up and snowdrops pop up these are flowers i see pop through our snow here in the spring before snow is gone it's like ah there it is so so we know that the the everywhere church is at the end where the everywhere church is in the now looks like in particular sprouts there's still and, snow on the ground. Yeah. We so, have to find we have to find the sun. You know, we yeah. have to gather with the sun. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. kind of reminds me of the line of the witch in the wardrobe when like as exactly. the story goes on, the, as they show up, it's wintertime, but then all of a sudden the, the grip that the, the witch, who's like the devil, has on the earth. Yeah. Death. It's it's relieving, it's melting. And then Aslan shows up and says it is finished. Yeah. yeah and that that's a reflection of first john where he talks about the true light is already shining and the darkness is already fading away and i'm like geez john have you watched the news tonight <laughs> it's pretty awful out there it's like well oh okay. man but but this is not the last word 
It's not. And it's not um, and despite what, despite the ways in which the church has become the whore of Babylon, it's the whore of Babylon who becomes the bride of Christ. That's not two groups of people. That's a that's a idolatrous, wayward, unfaithful people who are being redeemed like Hosea's wife was, or Hosea's, you know, from prostitute to, to faithful wife. That's, and so where are we at in that process? And how can I help? You know, well, one way I can help is to write a, a book on deconstruction that says, please uh, don't leave Jesus. Have you not met him? And maybe Christians will have to say, I have not met him. Okay, then now we know where to start. Mm. Um, we need we need to start by seeing if we can reorient ourselves to to a real God and a living connection in a person that I've met, and some people want to meet him. And uh, yeah, uh, I think it's so far so often it's it's the associations that trip people up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the associations, and I guess like we can brainstorm like, well, if the future of the church is going to be something meaningful or quote unquote successful. I don't like that word successful, but I don't know. I don't even know what success would look like, you know, but, yep. um, but you know, it can't be Christian nationalism. No, <laughs> it can't be political coercion. No, it can't be war like mentality. It can't be violent. Yeah. It can't do, be. Yeah, do, you see how be you're, do you see how you're deconstructing there? That's really, that's the way you do it. That's the way the early church did it. They're like, mm -hmm. let's start with what it's not. All right. Apophatic. Yeah. Apophatic theology where you're starting with, well, we know it's not that. And maybe you just have to keep doing that until you hit a positive thing, which you did. You went, okay, yeah. you did three or four negative things. Oh, but it will be just. Oh, okay. Ah, ah, yeah. yeah. And what that's else really will neat. it be? You know, so. It'll be merciful. It'll be it'll loving. Be, yeah. Yeah. It'll and be, then you yeah. don't you you don't let um well i guess you can't <laughs> they do it anyway but it's just like well what um if it's if it's if it's unjust and violent that's not actual church that's just mm. a lamp stand with no lamp in it but um you can claim lord lord all you want but um you know the he, he, the fruit of the spirit is is where you identify the church mm. um i, I you know them by their fruit yeah you and that's jesus criteria and mm -hmm. it's 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 not how you know did their doctrinal statement got all the t's or are they you know are they are they moralistic <laughs> enough to be have a purity no it's it's um do they have a flag in their church jeez <laughs> jeez the abomination <laughs> that causes desolation in the temple. Oh boy. Um, what else did we think that was? You know? So, oh boy. Yeah. 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 So, oh, wow. That's wild. I, I had a quick question actually about your, um, your book. You almost wrote what? Almost 10 years ago now. The, the gates shall never be shut. Yeah. Yeah. That was about was 10, 2000, 2009 when I was in hell. Like this is when I had stepped down from the church and I was in my bed. I wrote half that book from my bed. Wow. That's yeah. wild. So like, your your wilderness experience depression whatever disillusion you were in it took on physical manifestation oh yeah say? i mean i really damaged my nervous system and i don't wow. know that i've recovered entirely 
I know it's like way more fragile now, permanently, probably. Wow. And, um, and, and uh, so it was a, it was a full on breakdown. And I, you know, I, I minimized it a little bit because a friend of mine had gone through a similar thing, but he, he couldn't even control his bladder. I'm like, well, I'm okay. I'm not there. So I don't want to belittle his experience by calling mine burnout. But my doctor just said, yeah, this is, this is like secondary PTSD or, or, um, you know, it was so, and it, it, it buggered up my digestive system. And I, I was in bad. I'm tired. This was years. It took years to recover. Um, mm -hmm. And I, that's when I did my PhD. Cause I could just retreat to a, a quiet place and not have to face. I was curious uh, if, if you, since writing that book about, well, not, not 10 years ago, like 13, almost yeah. 14 years ago. Um, Yeah. So as you were writing, you wrote it about 10 years ago. I was curious if, if any of your ideas, are there any major ideas that have developed um, or changed since you wrote that book? Are there any ideas on the concept of apocatastasis or universalism? Yeah, I would say um, um, how I articulate it is a little different. And I've added a question to it that clarifies. So what I said at the time was that I am a hopeful inclusivist. And that means I believe that the, that Christ's, the salvation that Christ came to bring is for everyone. And that it includes all people. And when I, and then I said, but I'm hopeful about this not presumptuous. But I also clarified at the time, I'm not talking about a hope that's wishful thinking or doubtful thinking. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So the idea is he is the hope. So hopeful is not a psychology of I'm not sure. No, hope mm. is a person that I completely trust and that I think the means of of, of, of that salvation includes um, the necessity of, of the incarnation, of the crucifixion, of the resurrection, of, of future judgment, and even of a, of a faith response. And at the time, I, I, I cited um, uh, Hansers von Balthasar, who, who said, you know, we, we, we cannot presume um, on a doctrine, but we but we are obligated to put our hope in a person. And then he said, um, we need to preserve the, the principle of free will that it is that, that it's possible that someone could forever reject the love of Christ. That's the principle of free will. But then he says this, but it's infinitely unlikely. <laughs> Just think what that means. Yeah, In, infinitely unlikely. So, um, but then, so guys like David Bentley Hart, they just kind of trash on the hopeful inclusivist by saying that we're, well, that we're doubtful. <laughs> like, I don't know how many, how does infinitely unlikely sound doubtful to you? Yeah, no. Does we put our hope in a person seem like wishful thinking? No. Uh, so I, I felt, I, 
that's the, my one critique of him really mm-hmm. um so then i felt like okay well that word is not helping people understand me so i can't say hopeful <laughs> mm-hmm. um and universalist isn't helping people no. understand me because they think I mean the cross doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Faith doesn't matter. There's no judgment. Of course there is. All of those are the means of ultimate reconciliation. So I would say um, what I, where I've come to now that's a little more clarifying, I, I, I would put it like this. Very simple question. I don't know all the mechanisms of how the final judgment leads to ultimate redemption. I suspect that it has to do with God restoring our will that is damaged and dysfunctional so that we will make a freed will response. That's Maximus the confessor, but that's Mm. not the issue. Here's the issue. Does the new Testament foresee that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, it does. Does the New Testament foresee that God will be all in all? Yes, it does. Does the New Testament record Jesus saying, I will draw all people to myself? Yes, it does. Does Colossians 1 say uh, that God um, that God has reconciled all to himself? Yes, it does. does so it just So that's the question. It's not how does it work and how can you make it work? And what about those other verses? It is that simple question. Does the New Testament foresee ultimate redemption for all people and the entire cosmos? I find at least 30 passages where it overtly says so. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that question. That, uh, so I didn't press hard on that in my book because in that book, I was just wanting to say, let's just double check. Let's just look at every passage on hell, every passage on judgment. Let's check the criteria for every judgment. Let's look at all the imagery for, and just lay out the data. So I wasn't heavy handed in. I basically said like, yeah, here's, you could read this as an infernalist. You could read it as an annihilationist or a conditionalist. You could read it as a, as a universalist. But where, uh, you know, where I stand is I'm a hopeful inclusivist, but like do what you want with this data. But I think there's a compelling theme and direction for the data. <laughs> Whereas today I would just say, well, I just believe Jesus when he says he will draw people to himself. Don't you? <laughs> Don't you? <laughs> Was he wrong? Well, but he also says, I don't, let, yeah, what do you mean? He also said, let's finish this verse first. <laughs> then we yeah. can read the other verses. And then another, I would add one thing that I, at the time I would have said, the reason, one reason we can't presume is because we've got both judgment texts and universalist texts and we can't harmonize them. You just can't do that. So that humbles you in your hermeneutic. I would say it differently now. I would say we harmonize them by making them consecutive. And Mm. James, just like James does, mercy triumphs over judgment. There is a judgment and then mercy triumphs over it. That's only in this life though, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's only while you're living. (laughs) Yeah, well, there is a final judgment, and then God will be all in all. 
I mean, yeah. you just, so you just put them in an order. And I noticed that heart does that as well too. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the direction that most, um, Christian universalists have been heading in. And I had a really great, I don't know if you've interacted at all with Andrew Horanich. He's a young whiz kid. I don't kid. think I have. Really? Oh, I'm surprised he hasn't reached out to you. Cause he's, he's working on a, he's writing a book. It's coming out with soon called once loved, always loved. And he's basically, he's this 22 year old kid. He's super smart. I spent three hours talking to him about this mm. and we went in depth. We even went in depth on like the topic of preterism too, and understanding Gehenna passages and that way. And yep. that's a, that's super helpful. But yeah, that, that's, that's really cool. I, I, I was really curious. Like, um, it was one of the thoughts that popped in my mind. I'm like, I wonder if he still likes that book that he wrote. Like, yeah, I do. I, I what I like about it is that, um, is that I did provide really thorough data and categorization of, of criteria of the biblical text. I did the hard background work on the Jeremiah tradition and how it changes mm-hmm. different than the Enoch tradition. I, um, and I, I yeah. And I'm really grateful that I, I've written some of my books in a grumpier mood um that one i wrote in a more humbler tone and people uh, people say that that has helped them so i'm glad i mm-hmm. i'm glad i was in a better mood i mean i was in a i was in i was beaten down is what it was i didn't become mm-hmm. humble through some v- virtue it's i was so beaten down that I, I i didn't you know my fists weren't working so that that's a good thing for that book and it, it leaves it mm-hmm. it leaves it in the hand it, it, it leaves it leaves the decision in the hands of the reader about what direction they want to take rather than kind of um, bullying them towards my position. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome. I was wondering if, if before we close, you could lead us in one of, one of those contemplative experiences you're talking about where we encounter the face of Christ. Uh, I'd love to. to do that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So for those who are listening, um, it's very practical. Know, yeah, I'm just going to ask a few questions that that open us up to those who are willing um, um, to orient ourselves for encounter. And so um, I'm just picking one right now. Yeah, so I sense that um, I sense God's presence. He's always present, but sometimes I sense it because I wake up a little bit. And so I'm going to invite people just to um, uh, open their hands. And from our, from our open hands, we we just want to let go of every construct of God that has been a barrier to knowing Him. We let that go. We release our ideas of God, our notions of God, our idols of God, even our best ideas. We just open our hands and we, we let that go. And we know that uh, Christ is in you and that he has said, Behold, that means look with the eyes of your heart. And so um, 
we look in and and that he is the kind face of god and so i i invite you to behold the kind face of god and sure you're imagining it but it's more like we picture the truth and i picture the truth that jesus is kind the picture the truth that his eyes look on you with affection and mercy And as best you can with your open hands and just uh, open also then the eyes of your heart to, to look in his face. That he's without judgment. He, he said, I myself judge no one. He just loves you. And Lord Jesus, I, I invite you now to, to take our open hands in yours. And I invite you to offer a word of hope today. And so just as best you can, listen to him. It, it could be like um, you hear his voice, but often it's like you, it's more like you read his mind or you sense what he's saying. So, um, um, and why don't you go ahead and ask him like, Lord, do you have a word of hope for me today? And then just spend a moment in silence to see what, what you receive there. Um, so when we ask them that, we don't have to say, God told me. But you can say this, when I asked him, here's what came to mind. And then we can test it. Is that something he would say? So when I ask him, Lord, do you have a word of hope for me today? What came to mind is, it's going to be okay. And uh, that's now, <laughs> that's an invitation for another question for me to go like, what's going to be okay? It's like, well, we'll talk about this after. <laughs> okay. But he wants me to know it's going to be okay. And that's a word of hope for me. And I, I'm a pretty doom and gloom guy when it comes to world events. It's like, so I wonder what, what's the word of hope he gave you today? And, and, um, and now just if you take your open hands and, and receive this moment, receive this encounter as a gift and just pull your hands up onto your heart. Lay both of your hands onto your heart. And um, and we say, um, Lord, I'm I'm willing to trust that you love me. So I invite any of you who want to pray that, Lord, I I'm willing. It's not I may not trust him yet, but I I'm willing to trust that you love me. And let's pray it again, Lord. I'm willing to trust that you love me. Amen. It's beautiful. And it, I love how practical it is too. When you gave that pause, it was funny. I was at work uh, a couple days ago and I was actually looking over the lyrics to hymns like Joy to the World and Hark the Herald. And I was sitting in the, the teacher's lounge where I work. I was alone. And 
as I was reading them, all of a sudden this well, this joy started welling up inside of me. Mm. And I had like this really powerful experience with God where these lyrics just really came to life. And in that silence, um, the words, the line from Hark the Herald, Adam's likeness now he faced, stamp thine image in its place. Wow. And it, you know, I was trying to understand what that means for me. But as you were telling me to bring it to my heart, I was thinking like for my own self, my own struggle with eating too much and not being healthy and making good choices for myself. um, That's Adam's likeness, you know? Yeah. 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 And somehow by some mystery, Jesus's image is stamped in that place. Effacing Adam's likeness you know, the way, the ways that my flesh are and get in the way. Yeah. So I guess like, how does that look like hope for me? I guess it's something I'm going to have to process on my own, but, but that's kind of funny that that's what happened. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. And you can just um, then think about, um, you know, in the Orthodox church, we, we do everything in the present tense. So on Christmas, we will say Christ is born, not was born. Christ is born (laughs) and maybe Christ is born in a new way. And you, uh, once again, you know, cause each time I come to him, I'm like, I get it. He already did this. And on the other (laughs) hand, he's, he's still doing this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, bless, bless you, Peter. I appreciate having some time with you and you're absolutely, these are wonderful questions. Thanks for leading me through them. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm super pumped that you joined me. I, I look forward to listening back and definitely putting that practice into place. It's very practical, just trying to be with Christ, try to see his face. Yeah. Even though you, like you were saying, it, it is, you're just imagining it, but there's something about beauty, right? Yeah. God and, and beauty. And, and I don't even, I, yeah. And I don't even think I'd put the word just in there. We're imagining truth. In <laughs> mm-hmm. other words, it's not just imagination that imagination is the venue where he comes. That's one venue, right? Yeah. So <laughs> there, you know, that's, uh, these are, you don't do this and then get like, if you can do it just from the imagination and see blind eyes, see, then do, like, you know, go for it. But when I, it's just what, the my, con- my conclusion is that, yeah, he, he's real. And that, the imagination is one of the things he's sanctifying, visiting, filling, and like a sacrament, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Imagine the imagination sacrament. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I hope you have a great evening and Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you, and all the best to you as well. Bless absolutely. you, Peter. Hope Ciao. to talk again sometime. Oh, definitely, definitely. Let me stop this. Lord, Lord, the nature of your not an easy path But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust